0: Ah, yes, the passage that broke me, the passage that exposed unexamined assumptions I had made about comedy since I started this podcast. And once I got to working with this passage, I realized I had some assumptions that needed to be broken and Dante (laughs) did it for me. In the next passage, hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We're in Canto 19 of Inferno as we slow walk with the pilgrim and the poet across the known universe. We're at lines 64 through 87. We are in the third evil pouch of fraud. We are amongst those who have corrupted the church badly and we have walked down to the bottom of this pouch well been carried down by virgil really we've been carried down and we have met one of the guys upside down who seems in particular torment and he has dropped the name boniface thereby telling us popes can be damned and then he's gonna go on So let's get to it. Lines 64 through 87, the passage that broke me. Canto 19 of Inferno. At that, the spirit's feet both started to kick around, then sighing. A voice laced with tears, he said,
1: Well then, what do you want with me? If you want to know my name so badly that you clambered down that bank for it, you did know that I was once robed in the great mantle and truly was the son of the she-bear. I was so greedy to promote my cubs that I lined my pockets just as I fill this hole. Down under my head are crushed the others who before me made their living on simony, all squashed into the fissures in this rock. I'll get pushed down there, when the one comes who I believed you to be, when I made my abrupt demands, but the time I have already cooked my feet and been suspended upside down like this, is already longer than he'll be planted with his reddened feet, for after him will come from out of the west a shepherd who thinks he's above the law, whose deeds are even fouler. And so fit to be a lid over him and me, he will be the new Jason, like the one we read about in Maccabees, the one who the king made much
0: of, just as the king of
1: France will make much of this one.
0: That is a lot of information out of this guy in the hole who has now identified himself It's Pope Nicholas III. We know that from the periphrastic phrasing. This is a passage full of periphrasis and more problems beyond. So let's get to the start of it. At that, the passage opens, and by that, we assume the passage means that at that, at my telling him, I'm not Boniface. You think I'm Boniface, and I'm not Boniface. Remember, this figure thinks that Boniface has arrived early, and that the book the writing, has lied to him in some way, and Virgil says, tell him, you're not the guy that he thinks you are, so at that, the spirit's feet both started to kick around, then sighing, and in a voice laced with tears, he said, well then, what do you want from me? If you want to know my name so badly that you've clambered down the bank for it, whoops, there's a problem, You should know that I was once robed in the great mantle and truly was the son of the she-bear. Let's just say, first of all, this is the moment in which this figure identifies himself as Pope Nicholas III because he is from the powerful Roman Orsini family. And if you know anything about Romance languages, Orsini, you can hear the bear in their name or Nicholas III, who was Pope from 1277 to 1280. He is a figure that is a little troubling in many ways. We want to talk about him, but let's go back to where I said, oops, there's a problem right there. When he said, if you want to know my name so badly that you clambered down the bank for it. How does he know that? How does this guy upside down in a hole with his head down in the hole know that our pilgrim, and Virgil, he doesn't seem to know Virgil's there, how does he know that they've clambered down the bank? Did he hear it? Did he hear rocks dropping? There are many answers to this in commentary. Over the years, this <laughs> of them that has bedeviled interpreters. How does this guy know that that they clambered down just to learn his name, which apparently is the truth, but how does he know that? How many people walk along through hell? We're told, remember that Minos, remember way up with Minos, the connoisseur of sin? Remember how he wraps his tail around people and then shoves them off and they go flying over the edge and plop down into the hole that they're supposed to be in? And remember how I told you it's problematic because how can he wrap his tail around himself eight and what is this three tenths times so, I mean once you get these circles that are divided into subparts, even like the violent um, does Minos tail go around him a third and two thirds and all the way to indicate the seventh circle or there's ten malabolgia so a tenth two tenths three tenths very silly and very problematic. And part of the problem of a poem being written in process as it's happening and part of why this passage broke me in the end. But okay, we're going to get to that. So how does he move now? I have no clue. I've read so many answers to this in the Latin commentary, in the Italian commentary, in modern commentary. And really in the end, I think the simplest answer is that our poet gets carried away. Every writer does this. Every writer gets carried away once in a while with the story. The story is so compelling that there's a logic flaw in it and you don't even see it. You don't even see the logic flaw there because you're just so taken with the story and who couldn't be taken with the story of damning popes so which one well nicholas the nicholas III was not terribly educated in church affairs in fact he wasn't educated very much at all in church fa- affairs and seemed to know very little about either theology or the workings of the church but nicholas the before he became pope was an expert in political affairs, particularly in international law and diplomacy. His papacy reflected those interests as he himself encroached on secular matters. Nicholas III is the one who A. called Charles of Anjou to Sicily, but then B. tried to stop him. Once Charles of Anjou came and did what Nicholas wanted, essentially made war in Sicily. Then Nicholas felt that he had to put a stop on him. So Nicholas suddenly cozied up to the Holy Roman Emperor and tried to get him to form a stop on Charles of Anjou. In other words, he's playing diplomacy from all sides. In this passage, at least, he seems to be accused of nepotism. He says, I was so greedy to promote my cubs that I lined my pockets just as I fill this hole. First of all, you should know, of course, that popes shouldn't have cubs. Popes shouldn't have children. So there's a little bit of a sexual sneer going on here, but Secondly, it is true that Nicholas did appoint at least three of his close relatives to the role of cardinal in the church, and he gave many, many more of his relatives high bureaucratic positions in the papal state, in the papal curia, and in papal roles in other parts of the Italian peninsula. He did practice a kind of really uh, aggressive nepotism in his own life, but I should say that Dante is his harshest critic. All of those familial appointments, while they look to us like rank cronyism, they did help stabilize the see in an incredibly unstable time. That is, to have your relatives as your allies did help stabilize the papacy. And not only that, but his cozying up to the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf I., Helped stabilize Central Europe. Nicholas III asked for Romagna, the part of Italy in Emilia Romagna, in exchange for recognizing Rudolf I as the emperor. In doing so, Nicholas III did stabilize the Holy Roman Empire by throwing his support behind Rudolf I. The Holy Roman Empire was in grave danger of coming apart, and Nicholas kind of made it work out. He also settled a schism inside the church between certain Franciscan friars and an even stricter version of Franciscan doctrine. And there was a possible schism between the two. He actually worked to heal over that schism in a major part of the church. And furthermore, he even worked unsuccessfully to breach the break with the Eastern Church in Byzantium. He didn't work that one out, mostly because he was opposed by Byzantium priests, but he tried, in fact, to even breach that schism. Nicholas III is now not seen as such a bad pope, maybe extremely oily and maybe very secular in his focus with his diplomacy, but kind of held things together when things were coming apart at the seams, and Dante is his harshest critic because, Dante sees this kind of nepotism. I was greedy to promote my cubs. I lined my pockets. Dante sees this as ultimate church corruption. Let's move on in the passage. Nicholas goes on and says, Down under my head are crushed the others who before me made their living on simony. And now we have the sin named. Now we know what this pouch is about. It's simony, that is, the selling of church. Offices. And you should hear in the word Simony the reference back to the opening of the canto of Simon Magus, the magician. Remember? It starts, oh, Simon Magus, you know, all those who tried to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But you should also hear in the word Simony a play off Peter's original name. What was the apostle and St. Peter's original name? Simon, Simon Peter. Simony is the corruption of Simon Peter's office by the selling of it and the attempt to gain personal wealth off it. Notice that Nicholas says in this playoff simony that all of those who made their living before me are down in this hole, all squashed. So they're narrowed. They're, they're going to be pushed down ahead of him into the fissures and they're narrowed in the same way that Dante would like to see their powers of the papacy narrowed and controlled. Dante would like to see the secular leader as a check on papal power in the same way that the papal power can be a check on secular power. And these expanding popes who are pulling the papalcy out into the political landscape are ultimately squished Down into the fissures of this rock. And Nicholas tells him, I will get pushed down there when the one comes who I believed you to be when I made my abrupt interrogation or my abrupt demands. Nicholas III, before he was Pope, was head of the Inquisition. And that here he is said to be making hasty demands is most likely a comment on his role in the Inquisition. Not that Dante would necessarily have anything bad to say about the Inquisition, but we're being reminded that interrogation was originally part of Nicholas's job before he became Pope. The hasty, abrupt, maybe not such a good Inquisitor, my hasty interrogations, all of that is happening here with Nicholas. And we should say again, Nicholas is being spoken of paraphrastically, son of the she-bear, promote my cubs. We're going around Nicholas in ways that we never went around Boniface. Moving on in the passage. Nicholas goes on. By the time I have already cooked my feet and been suspended upside down like this, is already longer than he'll be planted. That is Boniface will be planted with his reddened feet. Okay, let's just do the math. Nicholas died in 1280. The journey that our pilgrim is taking takes place in 1300. So that's 20 years. But when Boniface comes, it's not gonna be that long before the next guy comes. So I've been here 20 years, my feet up there dancing away. And if we push this farther, the next guy, Boniface, is not gonna to have to wait that long before the next guy comes. And he says four after him will come from out west. And I need to unpack this before we get to the part that breaks me for after him will come from out west a shepherd who thinks he's above the law, whose deeds are even fouler and so fit to be a lid over him and me. So the popes are going to get thrown down here and they're going to squash each other on top of each other in this hole and squash each other farther and farther down into the fissures in the rock itself. Boniface will arrive sometime in 1303 when he dies, right? Which is, Host this journey, and he won't even be there 20 years before the next guy comes. So 20 years from 1303 would be 1323, and it won't even be that long until the next guy comes. Who's the next guy? That is Bertrand de Gaulle of Bordeaux, who eventually becomes Pope Clement V in 1305. And what do we know about Pope Clement V? He's the guy that moves the papacy to Avignon in 1309. In fact, Bertrand de Gaulle is made Pope Clement V in Lyon, not in Rome. Bertrand de Gaulle never sets foot in Rome. He is instead partly in league with the crown of France. He's also partly in league with the crown of England. He is, in fact, the choice of the king of England. But remember, Avignon is outside of French control. We're talking about Provence. We're not talking, he's not He's not pulling, as he's often said, the papacy into France. No, he's not. He's pulling the papacy into Provence, which is allied with the English and the French king, but it is not directly under their control. Clement V is a sickly man, but he's also a more wily man than that. He didn't move the papacy to Paris. He didn't move the papacy to London. He moved it to Avignon, a place that is within the realm of power of these other two much more powerful monarchs, but still not directly under their control. And of course, this, the great, as it's called, Babylonian captivity of the papacy that lasts, what, till 1377, this is Dante's great tragedy, that the papacy has been moved from Rome, that place that uh, Virgil wrote the great epic about the founding of that allowed for the Church of Rome. (laughs) Moving to Avignon is the tragedy for Dante of all of his existence. After Boniface gets shoved into this hole, this guy will come from out of the West, you know, over that way. Provence, Bordeaux, Paris, London, out of the West. A shepherd, Pope, shepherd will come who thinks he's above the law whose deeds are even valor and so fit led to be me and then a lid to be over him and me So he's going to shove the two of them even farther down in the crack when clement the fifth comes notice dante's now got three popes in hell nicholas the third boniface the eighth and clement the fifth and then there's this last biblical reference but i want to talk about this for just a second before we again get to the part of the passage that broke me It will be the new Jason, like the one we read about in Maccabees. He's not talking about Jason of Jason and the Argonauts. He's talking about Jason, the brother of the high priest Onius. Uh, Jason basically in the book of Maccabees goes to Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV, the evil, dastardly warlord that overruns the Levant. And Jason buys the high priesthood of the Jewish religion or of Judaism from Antiochus. For his brother, this brother of this Jason in Maccabees brings all kinds of pagan practices to Jerusalem. If you know anything about this time in history, it's very fraught. Antiochus shows up, slaughters much of the people in the Levant. He particularly takes umbrage at the Hebrew faith and ultimately sacrifices a pig in the temple in Jerusalem, a kind of full desecration, if you know anything about Jewish law. This guy, Clement fifth is going to be just as bad as this Jason in the Book of Maccabees who bought the high priesthood for his brother, brought kind of pagan practices and I mean the allegation here is that Clement bought the papacy from philip the fourth because he says just as the king of france will make much of this one while we're just standing here let's just say nicholas the third and clement the fifth are both spoken of paraphrastically right we're talking around the shipper comes from the west and this true son of the she-bear you know we're talking around both figures in this paraphrastic phrasing but notice that it does not go for boniface boniface is just named straight out in the text thus We see Dante's unbelievable ire at Boniface. I'm not even going to tiptoe around his name. I'm not going to say, oh, the Pope who did X, Y, and Z and tiptoe around and make you guess who it is. Nope. Just Boniface is named in ways that Nicholas and Clement are never named. Okay. Why did this break me? The dating problem. I'm gonna. I've been here twenty years, and Boniface is gonna come, and then somebody's gonna come, and Boniface won't even have to wait that long. If Boniface dies in thirteen or three, he's not gonna have to wait till thirteen twenty-three before Clement arrives, because Clement V dies in thirteen fourteen, a sickly but wily man. Why is this a problem? Because that's after the writing of Inferno. Inferno is generally thought to be written somewhere between 1306 and 1310. That's kind of standard dating. A lot of scholars will die on the hill of 1306 to 1307. A lot of scholars will die on the hill of 1309 to 1310. Some will even claim there's a revision that goes along around 1312, 1313. That's still not Clement's death in 1314. So how does Dante know that, in fact, Boniface is not even going to spend as long upside down in this hole as Nicholas did before the next pope comes and pushes him down into that hole. How does Dante know that? And how can this have been written at a moment in which Clement is still very much alive? How does Dante know when he's going to die? Ah, here was my assumption. I assumed, always, implicitly, and never examined it, that comedy is written in order. I made an assumption, which no one should ever make, that Dante started at line one and basically wrote it all the way out to Paradiso, line whatever, at the very end. And, you know, basically this thing is in order and it's being written in order. That is the way no book has ever been written. My own memoir, bookmarked, what is now the third chapter of that book, was actually originally in the first draft, the first chapter of that book. In fact, the very first chapter of that book that was ever written was part of I think it's now chapter 17 which was published in a magazine way before I even thought of turning it into a whole book. I didn't write that book in the order that the chapters now appear in bookmarked. No author does. No author starts at the beginning and writes their work all the way through. When I started working with this passage realized that I had an implicit assumption that comedy, and I still believe this, is a poem in process, but I was seeing the process as linear from Canto one of Inferno all the way out to Canto 33 of Paradiso. No way. Here's what I think. I think Canto 19 is so gorgeous and so perfect and so self-contained, we're going to see it is a completely self-contained unit. Then it was probably written later and dropped in here. It was probably inserted maybe there was a canto here about simony or maybe there was a canto here about something else about some other of fraud. Dante then as he's writing comes back, rewrites. This is a much more mature writing style all of canto 19 feels much more like purgatorio than it does much of inferno we're no longer in the zoo sections of inferno where we just pass by the sinners like those who've been violent against others or those opening bits of lust where we just see them all floating out on the wind, you know, Dido and all our friends floating out on the wind. We don't see all of that here. We see instead a much more contained, much more controlled, much more structured, much more poetic, much more mature poetic stance in this canto. And there is no reason to believe that Inferno is written from Canto 1 all the way out to Canto 34, or that comedy is written from Canto 1 Inferno to Canto 33 of Paradiso. In fact, it was probably being written in fragments, and pieces of it are being inserted. And that doesn't mean it's not artful. That doesn't mean it's not beautiful. That doesn't mean this fragment is not tying to Canto 18. It's not tying back to other sins of fraud. It doesn't mean that there's not minor metamorphoses here. It simply means that you should get rid of the assumption that this thing is written in any kind of order. Because really, honestly, Dante could have written this after Clement's death, probably did, and inserted it here. At this point in the manuscript, there is this notion, and I advanced it, and now I'm going to withdraw it. I advanced it with Francesca. Back when we were up with Francesca and the and the lustful, Francesca makes a reference to Caina, one of the lower bits of the ninth circle, the circle ahead of us, the circle of treachery that's ahead of us. She makes a reference to Caina and that the person who murdered them is going to end up way down there. And I said to you, it seems sometimes as if Dante has this whole poem in his head. I'm going to revise that. I got that from many, many dantistas who believe that somehow our poet is such a raving genius that the whole thing's sitting up in his head like Milton's Paradise Lost and being put out onto the page. But Just because Dante knows some parts ahead doesn't mean he knows all the parts ahead. That is a mistake I see in criticism constantly. People thinking, for example, that just because Dante has certain parts of this poem worked out in advance, It doesn't mean he's got the whole thing worked out. In fact, we're going to talk about this later. Canto 19 has a couple cantos in Purgatorio and in Paradiso that are direct echoes of this canto. And it only makes better sense that Canto 19 of Inferno is written when those cantos in Purgatorio and in Paradiso are written and then inserted here. And this is what it broke me. And this is why I love doing this, is because my assumptions were laid bare. My assumptions, unspoken, unthought through, that somehow comedy is in process from line one to line whatever it is at the back of Paradiso, that somehow this thing is in process that way? No, it's in process that way. It's also in process vertically not just horizontally, but vertically. And things are being written later and inserted. And it strikes me that Canto 19 is one of those cantos. I would point to this, the prediction of Clement's death, to say, hey, you know what? Dante is very careful not to predict things that happen outside of his own time frame with the exception of the second judgment and the final judgment and end apocalypse of the world. He's very careful to not predict political events that he doesn't know about. And yet here's a prediction. It just can't be the one outlier. I think Dante knows what's going to happen. I think Clement's probably already dead. I think that this shows the mature writing style of purgatory in which metaphoric space and narrative space fuse much more easily than they do usually in Inferno. Broken assumptions. Hey. It's important to keep learning, to keep changing what you think, to keep creating your own interpretation of comedy and to keep walking. So let's do that. Let's move on to the next passage in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Subscribe to this podcast, like it, join me. I realize I raved on a bit there about this uh, assumption that I already had, but I find it so fabulous to be able to replow the same field I've plowed, to find out that I've got rocks hidden under it Man, I love being able to do that. says so much about an inquisitive, curious, and always learning intellect, not mine, but yours too, that we should all embrace. So let's embrace it in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Come back, because we got more to do with this Nicholas upside down in this hole, and we got much more to do from our pilgrim, who's about to launch into one of his longest speeches in all of comedy just ahead on Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon.